The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Hey, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. You are so deserving of all the joy and juiciness you can stand. I'm Lisa McCourt of Joy School, and this is Do Joy, the Vibration Elevation Podcast. Let's do some joy. Welcome back to Do Joy, beautiful listeners. How's it going keeping your nervous system relaxed and peaceful during this season of slowdown, this season of quietude and gestation where the roots are riotous down below? Did Jacob's technique work for you? I hope it did, and I hope you found ways to incorporate it into your circumstances and make it personal for you. I have a fascinating guest to share with you today. He is a true world changer who's helping to reinvent psychiatry moving forward, helping to update branches of philosophy that need an overhaul. He is brilliant and out there making a tremendous difference in the world. So let's just get him right in here. Eric Mazel is a retired family therapist, an active creativity coach, a critical psychiatry activist, and the author of more than 50 books. I am thrilled, thrilled, Eric, that you could be here with us today. And I know that there are dozens of fascinating directions we could go in for this conversation. If it feels right to you, I'd love to spend some time talking about Heroism. I only just learned about it, but it aligns so solidly with the work that we do in Joy School and therefore the concepts that my listeners come to this podcast expecting to explore. And as we go along, maybe I'll tease out a few of the particular aspects so that you can see where those alignments are strongest. We do a lot, for instance, to deepen our understanding that all of life is perception. Every day from morning to night, we're just swimming through that sea of perception and we all perceive a different reality. So I love your language about us existing inside our cocoon of psychological subjectivity. Boom. Love that. Um, you talk also about how we come here, uh, who we come here as versus, I love this terminology, who we stiffen into, and then the potential beyond that of what we can be. 
And one more thing I definitely want to invite you to speak about is the importance of daily practice because my listeners know that this is called the Do Joy Podcast because learning fancy spiritual concepts is all well and good and a beautiful starting point, but the true vibration elevation happens when we bring those concepts and practices into our daily life in order to create new habituated thought patterns, default settings. So all of that to say, I just want to invite you to introduce us to Kirism through any entry point you feel is most appropriate, but I want to let you know those are three aspects I'm particularly juiced to hear you address. Golly, what a lot of <laughs> places to go. Um, let me start with a little background and that'll help uh, listeners understand where I'm coming from. I grew up after World War II, right after World War II, at the heyday of European existentialism. Even as a young kid, I was reading Sartre and Camus and the French existentialists. And so there came a point very early on, actually reading one particular essay by Sartre about the future of existentialism, where I realized that existential, existentialism was going to need updating. This mm -hmm. is as a kid, I kind of knew that. And my whole life, I think I've been working toward updating existentialism they ended at a certain point where they announced that we had to express our individuality through personal responsibility and then they stopped talking about things they did not talk about things like daily practice or certain paradigm shifts that over time i began to see were really important a couple of the main ideas of curism which is really just an updated existentialism are a couple of the ideas are one paradigm shift, the shift from the idea that life has a particular purpose to the idea of life purposes with an S, really mm. important shift for people to make because then they can identify what's important to them, their menu of life purpose choices, and then figure out how to get to those life purpose choices in a daily way rather than just checking things off their daily to-do list to maybe finally get to their life purpose choices. So that paradigm shift from the thousand-year-old metaphor of the purpose of life to life purposes, and then a similar shift from meaning, the idea that we are to search for meaning, to the idea that we have to make personal meaning, the difference between being a seeker of meaning and a maker of meaning. And again, for thousands of years, we've had the metaphor of seeking meaning, that it's out there somewhere top of a mountain or in a book like the Bible or at some guru's feet that is out there. We have to go on some trek or vision quest or something to find meaning. Nope. Mm -hmm. We have to stay put and try to tease out what's meaningful to us, coax meaning in a daily way out of life. And because I've been working with creative performing artists for the last 30, 35, 40 years, as a, first as a therapist and then as a coach, I know the extent to which the following is true for them. They don't know it, but I know the extent to which the following is true for them. And that is that activities in the service of meaning may not feel meaningful. This is a big learning because if you're sitting there slogging through a year's worth of writing your novel, 300 days of slogging, 282 of those days, it's not going to feel very meaningful. It's just going to feel like hard work, boring work, meaningless work. So if you don't have this model in your head that that's okay, then you're going to wonder where meaning went. It didn't go anywhere. It's just that the activities in the service of meaning may not feel meaningful. 
And as I say, that's a big learning because once you can settle, to use an analogy, in the days before D-Day, we don't care if Eisenhower feels that the invasion is meaningful. We just need him to do it. We need him to get it right. And if he pesters himself about, is this meaningful or not, then he's going to distract himself from 200,000 troops bobbing in the water on 5,000 ships. He's not going to be thinking about the right things. Mm. So if we better accept that meaning comes and goes, that it's just a certain kind of psychological experience, then we won't be so worried when it goes, mm. when a given day doesn't feel particularly meaningful. If we live our life purposes, that's what we ought to be doing. And if meaning attaches, that's a blessing. But we don't want to hunt for or crave meaning. We just want to live our life purposes. Let me take a breath there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and by the daily practice of living the life purpose, that's where the meaning has the opportunity to arise, right? Yes, but um, I've got to catch your language just as I have to catch Thank everybody's you. language. You Thank said, you. you know, live your life purpose. Ain't no life purposes. Purposes. Oh, I there, thought I said that. Yes. Thank you. Okay, good. No, most people can't get that S out of their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> They're really used to saying life purpose. That, it, that sounds peculiar to say life purposes, but that's a really important shift. But yes, that's the way we get to live our life purposes. And in my language, we get to negotiate each day around our life purposes. In, in my book, The Power of Daily Practice, I have like, I don't know, 20 different kinds of daily practices. And people may need several daily practices for their day to accommodate their various life purposes. You might have a creativity practice, you might have a recovery practice, you might have a, an activism practice, you might have a service practice. A life is made up of multiple life purposes. And the only way that those life purposes get led or met is that they actually get on onto your daily to-do list in a daily way. Let me just say, I've come to the idea of this daily practice by virtue of seeing the extent to which when a creative person skips two or three days, they lose months and years of time. Mm. The problem is not losing a day or two. Who cares? Yeah, you, you want to live your day? You want to watch 5,000 episodes of The West Wing today? Fine. <laughs> Fine. That, that's how you want to spend today. Fine. The problem is that if you skip your novel today and tomorrow, in 2023, you'll be trying to get back to your novel. It's the way in which we lose contact with our real work by skipping a few days. That's why I think daily practice is, is, is about the only remedy for not losing those huge chunks of time. And that's what my clients are struggling with, that, they, that they're not getting to their work for huge chunks of time. Mm -hmm. Just to repeat, you know, if you lose a day here or there, well, we may get sick. We may have other responsibilities. There are lots of reasons why we lose a day here or there. And that's not the tragedy. The tragedy is to lose a decade of your life when you should have been writing novels and you just were doing other things. Right. And can you still consider it a daily practice if you set the intention that it's going to be a five-day-a-week practice and you know that no matter what, you're going to be there five days a week? Or does it really, is it critical that it's daily? It's not critical. My, my uh, talking points around that is that our meaning needs don't end on the weekend. Mm -hmm. So, and our life purpose needs don't end on the weekend. So I suggest that these be seven day practices, but they can be, there are practices that can only happen 
two or three. Let's say you're rent, you're a painter and you rent studio space three days a week. Well, then you're probably painting three days a week. That's a regular practice. That's not a daily practice, but it's a regular practice. So I'm really talking about regular practice rather than daily practice. I just like to sell the daily word because that it is that it's wonderful to get to something that's actually meaningful to you every day is a wonderful thing. So Yes, we're talking about regular practice, not daily practice, but I still like to sell the daily idea. I do understand that. And there's there's an aspect of um, curism that I, I also wanted to ask you to address that I'm just remembering. Much of the work that my joy schoolers do is rooted in being the observer of the self, to use Eckhart Tolle's language, getting better and better, watching our minds, hearing the voices in our heads, understanding where those different perceptions are coming from so we can sort them and consciously decide which thoughts and impulses we want to subscribe to and which we don't. And um, I love the way you describe the practice of stepping to the side. That resonates a lot. I, I would love for you to describe that practice for the listeners. Sure. Um, let me connect it to uh, another idea that I've been floating recently, and it's the subject of my most recent book, which is called Redesign Your Mind. And that's the idea of your mind as a room that you can visualize folks nowadays understand about visualizing as a technique it's actually only a several decade old technique started in a certain hospital in northern california where somebody got the idea to invite cancer patients to visualize their healthy cells defeating their cancerous cells so it started out as a medical procedure or medical help medical intervention but over the years, we've understood that there are lots of things one can visualize, visualize sports success or performers entering on the stage in a powerful way. So we understand about visualizing. So this is a particular kind of visualization where you visualize your mind as a room and you redesign it and redecorate it. So you do things like install windows so that a breeze blows through so that your same, your same stuffy thoughts can finally get wafted away. Or, and this is an important one, you remove that bed of nails that most people are lying on and replace it with an easy chair. Mm. Or, you know, have as your light switch a calmness switch. So when you enter the room that is your mind, you flip on the calmness switch and get calmer. All of this is by way of increasing your awareness. And that's what the stepping to the side idea is. It's just sort of metaphorically speaking to ways to increase one's awareness because we go through life typically quite unaware, defensively unaware, with a lot of things we don't want to know about. And like all people who are in the helping profession, we're trying to invite people to be a little less defensive and a little less, a little more aware about what's going on in their life. So this step to the side is a simple, simple idea that when you're about to, let me parallel the step to the side with, a, with another idea, and that is the idea of not accepting our first thoughts about things. Because it's our habit that if we're thinking about something and a thought pops into our mind, we think that must be the right thought because it popped into our mind. <laughs> but actually, we have to investigate many of these first thoughts and leave room for second thoughts. So if you're sitting on your easy chair in the room that is your mind, that gives you the opportunity to look at that first thought and wonder aloud to yourself, is, the, is it the right thought? Is it an appropriate thought? Or, or is there another Even thought true. coming that I would wait for? And just one other thing about the room, there's your mind. There are many things to say, but 
One of the most important features of this visualization is visualizing that the room has corners, as rooms do, and that in one corner is your speaker's corner, like, like the speaker's corner in Hyde Park in London, where for hundreds of years you, you had the opportunity to say what was ever on your mind without reprisal. Most people are censoring themselves, not just in the world, not just not speaking in the world, but not speaking their truth to themselves. So by installing this speaker's corner in a corner of the room that is your mind, that's the place where you can go to to tell yourself your truth. And because I'm working with so many creative and performing artists who are censoring themselves and therefore censoring their art, they really need this speaker's corner. They, if you're a memoirist and you can't tell yourself your truth, your memoir is going to be a little bit dull and a little bit untruthful and a little bit inauthentic by virtue of you not... What you want to say to the world is a separate question because we have real safety issues. If you live in a country where you tell the truth, you may be killed. So not, I'm not saying that everything that is true to say you ought to say, but you ought to be able to say it to yourself and then decide what you want to release out into the world. That second part is a safety issue, but the first part is a self-truthfulness issue. And there we've got to get more truthful. Mm, yeah, we call it becoming you -er in joy school. You want to be you and then get you -er and get to be the you-iest you you can be. And I know here are some places a high value on individualism. And you warned that most of the people and institutions around you are not going to be supportive of that often. Yep. I do a lot of work with transgender youth, and this is a big issue for this community, yep. as you'd assume. Do you have any special tools or angles that you employ for helping your clients to make this process of honoring their own individual truth and authenticity any easier? I'm not, I, offhand, I'm not sure about which you know tool or thought to go to. The thing I would want to say, though, is that because we are trying to guard our individuality through time, and that is what we should do, we should be trying to guard and protect our individuality, that means that we are going to grow a little oppositional in nature towards society. That seems natural that we'll be in this oppositional relationship to society at large, and whether that's our family or our culture or our cult or our subculture, whatever it is, we're going to end up um, being at loggerheads with um, those institutions, those organizations. And we want to accept that that truth is coming rather than being surprised that we're in this oppositional relationship. Uh, let me take a step to the side. One of my other areas is the authoritarian personality literature. Um, in the 1950s, researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, led by a fellow named Adorno, did a lot of research into what they called the, the authoritarian personality. Obviously, this came out of World War II, and their interest was not so much who was Hitler, but who were Hitler's followers. Why did so many tens and tens of millions of Germans follow Hitler? And this is completely relevant to where we are, of course, today. But and so they investigated the authoritarian personality, but they investigated it as a sociological and political phenomenon. And I've been looking at it as a family phenomenon. Um, I did a book on authoritarian wounding in the family, done research. I've put out a questionnaire where people express their feelings about 
um, hating their father or their mother or their siblings or their grandparents or their uncles or being bullied by them, etc. So the pundits say, and no one has real numbers, but the pundits say that as many as 25% of the population may be authoritarian in nature. That means that almost everybody's going to have to deal with authoritarian wounding. We're going to have to deal with being pummeled by authoritarians, whether it's in the workplace or in the family. And the only thing that really works to deal with other authoritarians or to deal with authoritarians in the family is to get the heck out of there. Mm. The authoritarian is so good at what he or she does that we can't win any interpersonal wrestling matches with them. It breaks my heart for all the, the children who, you know, by necessity have to stay in that environment for so long. Exactly, exactly. That's why the healing is so long, because they've been stuck there for way too long, being humiliated, abused, all the things we could name, to an extent to which we don't really understand and, <clears throat> and, <clears throat> and don't want to admit. But that's right. But because they've been there so long and, and are dying to get out, and many do run away too young, of course. They run away 13, 14, 15, 16, then they're on the streets and have all of those horrors. But let's say they stay put and finally get out. Then they have decades of healing coming, trying to deal with the trauma of all that authoritarian wounding. So I'm not sure what, what the thread was there exactly, but that's just by way of saying the extent to which authoritarian wounding goes on is um, kind, of, kind of a secret. Mm. I haven't it, heard it, that term, but it makes so much sense. I know you have and, a book for parents to help them raise children who are deemed different. Probably the parents who really need to read that are the ones who are could be. being these authoritarian influences, and those probably are not the ones who are going to be open to reading that. That's exactly right. Human Design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum Human Design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24 through 26, at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Let me go sideways to a different idea, just so we have a chance to get it on the table during this chat. Um, I'm not sure how you brought it out up, but you brought it up. You brought up something about who we are as we come into the world mm -hmm. and all of that, and who we stiffen into, so, and who we stiffen into. And so, I have a very simple, but I think it's a robust model of personality. The personality is made up of three parts original personality that is who we come into the world already as and anybody who's had you know kittens or puppies or kids knows that creatures are themselves every every creature comes into the world itself completely itself a little more vigilant than the next or a little less vigilant a little easier to start a little more harder to start just himself or herself Psychology, psychiatry pays zero, and I mean zero with a big O, attention to original personality. Don't care who you came into the world as. Want to treat you as a blank slate as if everybody comes into the world the same, which is nutty. So that's A. Mm -hmm. B, then part two is what I call formed personality, and that's what you were saying. That's, how, that's the way in which we stiffen into our recognizable self over time. 
And it's that stiffening quality that upsets us. We, we get upset that we repeat our bad behaviors or make the same mistakes or trip in the same place or all of that. But we stiffen into a certain kind of personality. We do. But then we have part three, thank God, which is our available personality. And that's our remaining freedom to be the person that we would like to be. So those three parts, original personality, form personality, available personality, capture a lot of what's actually going on with human beings. And I think it's very valuable for people to just wonder through if something may be a feature of original personality as opposed to a mental disorder. Because if it's a feature of original personality, that means it ain't no disorder. It may be a lifelong challenge, but that's a different kind of language. Lifelong challenge is different from mental disorder. Mm -hmm. Pick any boy, any boy on the face of the earth, comes into the world with a lot of chi, a lot of energy, bouncing off walls, bored in school, going to get an ADHD label nowadays, and going to be fed chemicals by the age by the age of... Parenthetically, before I finish that sentence, six-month-olds are now getting psychiatric drugs. What? Yeah what prophylactically like so that they won't catch something later it's, it's completely crazy and bad and no, and they have no advocates their parents aren't advocates because their parents are buying what the culture is saying is the right way to think about these things as mental disorders but to finish that sentence just about whatever the, just about the way every boy is fits the criteria for adhd mm. so um when when you mentioned at the beginning critical psychiatry advocate this is that area the this area has three names it, it, the names are critical psychology critical psychiatry or anti-psychiatry and a handful of working professionals in the mental health field would uh, put themselves in those categories as opposed to the standard way of looking at mental disorders we do not believe in and this is technical what i'm about to say but we do not believe that the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, which is the Bible. Diagnosing, diagnosing Bible, mm -hmm. is a legitimate document. We don't believe in its legitimacy. We don't believe it's valid. And we think it's just a shopping catalog for professionals to make money. Oh, my goodness. And that's a big sentence, of course. And we could spend, I do... <laughs> six-hour webinars. <laughs> it's, it's hard to say all that needs to be said in, in three seconds flat. But if folks are interested in what I just said and want to go somewhere to learn more in a simple way, I, I would invite them to go to a, a website called madinamerica.com, run by a guy named Robert Whitaker, who did a good book called Epidemic of a Anatomy of an Epidemic about uh, antidepressant use. But that's a good starting place to, and I have a website called um, thefutureofmentalhealth.com, which has a reading resource list of 100 books in, a, in the critical psychology field. So there's a lot for people to learn about in this area. Folks like labels for themselves, unfortunately. Unfortunately, that's a human flaw. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've got ADD, or I've got PTSD, or I've got this, or I've got that. It's a relief. That explains it. Oh, that's fine. And, oh, yes, it's too bad that the chemicals I'm on have all these terrible side effects. But since I've got this thing, I had better take these chemicals for the rest of my life. An awful lot of people are in that 
position. And if I say the following thing, they get it, but it doesn't change their mind. If I say, how can hating your job be a medical condition? Well, they get that. How could hating your job lead to pills? How, how does that work, do you think? How is it a medical condition? Well, they get, no, no, of course that doesn't make sense. But because of that intermediate stepping stone of, I hate my job leads to clinical depression. Oh, okay, now I've got something. Now I need a drug for it, or I need a chemical for it. So it's hard to talk people out of that powerful analogy. The mental health profession makes so many trillions of dollars on just an analogy, which is the analogy between physical disorder and mental disorder. It linguistically works. Mm. So people think there must be such things as mental disorders because there obviously are such things as physical disorders. Mm. And it works just linguistically. It does not work in reality. But, yeah. you know, it's it's hard to provide the right kinds of talking points to get people off this vision of mental disorders being all around us. That reminds me of, of how you describe knowing your purposes. And clearly one of your purpose is to walk this path of education and leading humanity toward this much more beautiful vision for the future of mental health and just taking that next right step and the next right step. And how close do you think we are to some sort of tipping point? Is it on the horizon or is it going to take a lot more visionaries like yourself to educate? It will never happen. Oh my goodness. The change will never happen. unless until there are no pharmaceutical companies but we need them as long as there are pharmaceutical companies they have too many billions of dollars selling this idea that mental disorders are pseudo medical conditions requiring chemicals with powerful effects so no it's never going to change uh, which doesn't upset me really because i have a sort of a simple vision of helping a person here and a person there not saving humanity We're not a species that looks like it wants to save itself particularly. But I can do a kind of work where one person here and one person there is um, gotten some good information or is is helped in some way, and that's fine with me. You ask me the big questions of are we going to survive? Nope. Nor am I, nor are you. (laughs) So as far as that goes, you know, we... And you, you kind of alluded to my life purpose statement, even though we have life purposes and not just one life purpose, I do believe we can encapsulate our many life purposes in a life purpose statement. And mine is, and you alluded to it, mine is do the next right thing. Yeah. I have a very simple life purpose statement, do the next right thing. So that's what I do or try to do. And <clears throat> one of those next right things is, as you say, to, to advocate for mental health reform Along those lines, I'm doing a multi-year, multi-book. I'm lead editor on a multi-year, multi-book series for ethical Ethics International Press called the Ethics International Press Critical Psychology and Critical Psychiatry series. The first two books in, in that series come out in June, and that's one of the things that I'm advocating for. And there are going to be lots of volumes in that series that do interesting work about law and psychiatry. The idea of psychiatrists as expert witnesses, terrible idea. Mm. Uh, it's, it's so many aspects of this are not okay. And we'll do, I'm going to do a book on each one of these aspects that aren't okay <laughs> till the end of time, till, till the press says, stop it already, Eric. 
<laughs> That's a lot of next right steps being 50 something books in already and no end in sight for, for your writing. I pulled a quote of yours that, that dovetails perfectly with what you're saying. You say, for now, just do the next right thing and the right thing yep. after that. Then there you would be self-aware, purposeful, aligned with your values and a sea of shifting meaning aiming for the good and undaunted by human puniness. I love that. Undaunted by human puniness. You have to yep. be, right? And the shifting meaning. I mean, you're you're here talking about this extremely meaningful, powerful work that you're doing in the world and then basically saying, it's not going to make any difference. <laughs> That's kind of what I hear you saying, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, but it doesn't matter because right around you in your sphere of influence, you're making an incredible right. difference. And that's all that that's matters. Right. It's all that's any right. of us are here to do. Wow. Seems like, seems like a good place to wind down on. <laughs> That's amazing. That is um, a, a good place indeed. So I know that the listeners are fascinated with a lot of things that you just unpacked for us. How? What was the best way for them to keep up with you, see what you're doing? The best way is to come to my site, ericmazel.com, E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L.com, and get my newsletter. I send out a weekly newsletter every Sunday. And so you can subscribe to the newsletter at the site. There's a nice little free goodie for subscribing to the newsletter. And um, that's the place to go to the site. Thank you so much for your time. This has been very eye-opening and inspiring. <laughs> inspiring, I'm going to call it. <laughs> Maybe Thank not for, for all of humanity or the future of humanity, but for me right now where I sit, it's been very exactly. inspiring. <laughs> exactly. Thank you for having me. Thank you. There you go, my darlings. A lot to unpack there from this fascinating world changer. One opportunity to spend some more time with him, as well as me, is the Heal and Create Retreat at the Institute for Creative Living. If you're listening prior to February 2022, go to instituteforcreativeliving.org to find out more about that. And if you're listening after that date, go there anyway because there's always something juicy and fascinating brewing there. Eric is on faculty there, as am I, and some really special other voices that you've heard recently on this podcast, like Jacob Nordby, Scott Stabile, Stephen Farmer, Julia Cameron of The Artist's Way is on faculty, and many others. This week, I'm going to make your home play a bit open-ended. Eric spoke about the importance of establishing a daily practice. You know I'm always harping on that too, how all these yummy things we talk about are fun to noodle around with in our brains. But my vision for you, every one of you listening, is true sustainable vibration elevation. And that comes with the doing of the practices, not just the learning about them. I wish I could make it that easy for you. I would if I could, my darlings. So this week, I want you to take a moment to consider what would be a daily practice that would lead me toward one of my goals for myself, that would align me with one of my life purposes. It could be absolutely anything that you commit to doing every single day. It could be an hour of practicing something that you want to master, or it could be as small as a two-minute little mindfulness practice that you schedule into your busy morning routine. 
If you've been following along with this podcast from the start, you have about 20 or so different suggestions that hopefully you've tried out in these past months, and hopefully you have an idea of which ones have been most meaningful for you, which types of practices resonate with you the most. So this week, I just want you to pick something unique to one of your life purposes and commit to doing it every single day. Let me know how you do. I always love hearing from you. I'm looking forward to seeing many of you at my workshop at the Heal and Create Retreat. And as always, my Oasis group is here to welcome you whenever you feel called. Until next week, my darlings, enjoy your daily practice. Joy comes in many flavors, but they all start with you being full on glorious you. If you'd like some personal love and support along your joy journey, find me at lisamccourt.com. And as you do your joy this week, remember that you elevating your vibration elevates the vibration of everyone around you and ultimately elevates the vibration of all humanity. Thank you for being a valued member of the team that's bringing more love and joy into the world. We need you. See you next week for Do Joy, the Vibration Elevation Podcast. Much love. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.